picture this. It's a sweltering summer day, and you land in, of all places, Cairo in Egypt, which, as many of us probably are well aware, is not just one of the greatest cities in the history of the world, but part of that reason is because it's one of the oldest cities, even after all these years, after all these millennia, thousands of years of history and culture and peoples controlling and being controlled and a lot going on there, right? And you walk through the streets for a while, seeing the sights and sounds and smells and bazaars and all the unique cultural aspects of a real major ancient city like like Cairo has to offer. And as you're going through the city, you eventually catch a ride. And with some other wandering tourists, you go to a place that many, many, many people before you have visited. And like many, many people before you, you see it, or you see them, rather, rising above the hot, blistering, hazy sands. And what you see, of course, are the Great Pyramids of Giza, gleaming as they have for so many thousands of years in golden haze under that hot Egyptian sun. And these, of course, are the greatest pyramids that the world has ever known. And so you stand there, and you look up, and you marvel at them, again, like so many before you. But now, let me ask you this. What year is it? Okay. I think you know your answer, right? Now, would you say that that answer is 45 BCE? Because that's when it is. Now, that doesn't seem all that ancient, does it? Well, let's just list a few things that haven't happened yet later in the ancient world, considering that we're viewing this ancient structure in 45 BCE, almost 2,000 years ago from today. A few of the things that haven't happened yet in the ancient world. The Western Roman Empire... You may have heard of that, right? The ancient Roman Empire. Well, that won't collapse for another 500 years or so, give or take, of course, depending on how you define collapse exactly. But about 500 years, quite a long time, right? So we can say that we're squarely in ancient history, right? I don't think anybody would argue that. In fact, an old friend of yours, perhaps, one Julius Caesar, who recently conquered Egypt. Maybe that's why you're there visiting. Maybe you're part of his envoy or entourage or, I don't know, some other Roman dignitary or connected to Roman dignitaries in some way. But in 45 BCE, Julius Caesar is still alive. He won't be assassinated for another five years. I mean, heck, Jesus Christ, he won't be born for another 40. There's no Jesus right now. And Nero, Nero won't fiddle while Rome burns for about another 100 years. 
Now think about that, right? I mean, think about how different our world was just 100 years ago. Going back from 2019, right? I mean, you go back a little farther, sorry, further, and cars and planes didn't even exist. But going back even 100 years, and those are still relatively rare, right? I mean, there were people alive, presumably, 100 years ago in 1919, who would have known people who had fought in the American Revolution. Just a couple lifetimes in between. But now let's go back to the pyramids, right? In 45 BCE. And let's realize something else. That in 45 BCE, you are closer to the people living today in the year 2019 than you are still to those who built those great brick pyramids that you're staring up at almost 2,500 years before the ancient world, in which you consider it to, of course, be the modern world. You know, this is an idea that comes up often in a lot of the topics. I mean, depends on the topic, right? But once in a while, I get a research paper that sort of has either a direct historical focus to it or there's, you know, historical elements or reflections or research involved. And so it's worth thinking about, right? I mean, if we think about how perspectives change over time and sort of why they change over time, we can start to really wonder and start to really ask, well, where in the heck are they going to go moving forward, right? I mean, think about computers even just five years ago. I mean, relatively similar, but think about them 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. They start to change really quickly, and so do our lives, right? And now, extrapolate that change into the future and ask, well, okay, what will computers be like five years from now, 50 years from now, 100, 500, 5,000, 5 million <laughs> at a certain point? you start to wonder, am I even really asking the right question? Is, is, is thinking about computer progress a relevant way of thinking about it when we start to go ahead that far? I mean, try to think of your version of yourself going back to 45 BCE again and trying to explain to that version of you what a computer is. I mean, you could maybe do that with a, a phone, right? You could maybe explain what a rotary phone is for those of you who are old enough to have used a rotary phone, right? It, okay, it's a mechanical device. Romans had some kinds of mechanical devices, right? They had, they're had they well known for their engineering and for their uh, military artillery. You could maybe explain something like a a phone along those lines, well, it's a machine that uses switches and mechanical gears and that sort of thing, and it's able to transmission communication across long lines, right? You can sort of map that out for an audience, even going back maybe a couple thousand years. I, I think, again, language barrier pending, you might be able to explain that relatively well. 
But could you explain a smartphone? I mean, where would you even start? I think, you know, the first thing that confuses me in trying to explain a smartphone to an ancient Roman is the fact that it's not even really a phone anymore. Which I think is kind of ironic, right? We call it a phone and it less and less is used as one, right? I mean, what percentage of your cell phone do you use to talk on the phone? I would imagine for most people it's a relatively small percentage now. Most of it is, well, even if you are talking, it's oftentimes using uh, WhatsApp or Skype or some other internet Wi-Fi service-based provider, right? As opposed to, you know, your more traditional cell service. I imagine within the next... However many years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, very soon, I think there will be a point where we'll be calling them phones, maybe still, but we won't have caught up to the fact that they're no longer phones. When you consider, and this is something that came up in one of my classes the other day, we were talking about. Uh, I I forget if we were talking about social media particularly or, or research particularly, but, you know, I made the point that in some ways it's kind of, it feels cliche to say, and it, it feels almost a, a little uh, Luddite of me. I feel like an old man saying it, but you kind of can't forget it. And when you think about history in general, you kind of have to pause and really try to appreciate the fact that when you pick up your phone, I haven't run run the numbers myself, but the amount of computing power and the amount of data that you have access to via something as common seeming as your cell phone and and often thought of in 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 just frustrating ways. Oh uh, my 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 download so slowly oh it streams so slowly i can never get a signal i can never get service i mean a lot of comedians joke about these types of things even now but for good reason because you have more intellectual capability in your hands with a phone than <laughs> i mean if you tried to explain this to the romans they would have thought you were i don't know what they would have thought i don't know who they would have thought you were or what you were trying to describe, a a box that has all the answers? Well, what do you mean? Well, you ask it any question and it gives you an answer. Well, who gives you the answer? Anybody you want. Okay, what else can it do? Well, you can read any book in history. You can what? Yeah, you can read any book in history. So it's a library. Oh, it's all the libraries. I mean, you start to think about it through that lens, and holy crap, I mean, you have real power here, right? I mean, think about navigation. We don't, we, how often uh, you know, do you think about the fact that this has been a, a major problem throughout history, people trying to get places, charting the stars, trying to figure out how to chart the stars, using longitude and, and trying to figure out 
uh, well, trying using latitude and trying to figure out longitude. There was a, a, a fam- very famous uh, prize that they used to have um, back, I don't know, sometime in the Enlightenment era, age of exploration in European history. And they called it, I believe, the Longitudinal Prize. It was an English prize or something like that. It was to try to figure out the problem of calculating long- longitude for sailors and navigators. And they were willing to pay a lot of money. Because guess what? The person who figured this out, that's going to make a big difference for global travel, global trade, and, you know, how they felt it, global progress. But this was monumental to try to figure something like that out. Now, you can just be bored and go on your phone and calculate or look up how to get anywhere, different ways to get anywhere, time involved. What's going on in these places? I mean, there's something almost instantaneous about all this, right? Where you you sort of, you start to realize that when we say we're becoming more interconnected as a society and species, it's more than just the capability. It's the fact that it's, it's there. It's no longer somebody has to come up with it. It's already all there. I mean, you have more, more information in you, accessible in your phone. I don't even know what the calculation is. I don't even know what the metrics would be to compare it to historical capabilities, right? I mean, take the Library of Alexandria, however big that was. It doesn't matter how big it was because I got news for you. Your phone has... Uh, Practically speaking, probably infinite more information than that library. Now, of course, that library had information that's been lost to history, so that's sort of invaluable in its own way. But, I mean, still, come on. This is crazy, and we don't think about it. We we just, we don't stop to really ask, how much of a change is that? To go from, when I was a kid, oh boy, here we go. I'm I'm not that old, I swear, but it feels that way because of these these elements that we really have to stop and think about. When I was a kid, I was on that sort of edge where, of course, not everybody adjusts and adapts at the same time and speed uh, and rate, but I remember when I was very young, we had one computer in the house that was sort of a work computer. Um, it wasn't a you know home PC or anything like that, but... I remember going from no computer to computer. And I remember before the computer, it's probably like second grade or something like that. We had to do a, you know, second grade version of a research report. And I forget what the, the topic was. It was look up some information on some country or something like that, right? Well, guess what? I waited till the weekend. The library was closed. Where do I get my information? There's no online. wasn't even a, a thought. wasn't even a possibility. I'll go on a computer and look it up. No, I got to go find this information somewhere else. I wound up going about three houses down to my neighbor's house because they had Encyclopedia. I think it was Encyclopedia Britannica collection or something along those lines. And my parents said, "Yeah, we know that the neighbors a few doors down have Encyclopedia. Go ask them. S- see if they're around." So I went walked down, and I very clearly remember knocking on their door saying, oh, excuse me, I'm Joe from a few doors down. 
and I have this project and, you know, I was hoping I could look through some of your encyclopedias and they were happy to, and I did. And that's how I wrote my report. Now, the, the amount of sort of motivation and wherewithal and time to do all of that compared to, I'll wait till Sunday night in my bed before my parents yell at me to go to bed or whatever, to Google it. That's not just an easier, different way to do things. That's a fundamental, that's a fundamental change, right? I mean, that's a fundamentally different way to, to live. And it, it should be a good thing, right? It should open up opportunities to spend more time on on other other interests, other activities. Now, I, I don't know if that's the case. I think that's something that is certainly worth talking about moving forward. And it's something that, again, comes up in class very often. But, you know, a lot of these questions, a lot of these reflections, I think, in of themselves, they are interesting because they do get you thinking. And that, that is something that I like to emphasize when I'm teaching is that, it's hard to think through some of these points and some of these questions and just say, oh, well, here's clearly the answer. Here's what makes most sense in terms of deriving meaning from this. I mean, yeah, sometimes that's the case. I mean, that's the point, ideally, I feel like, of good conversation and, dare I say, good debate. But I think it's enough just to sort of get these thoughts out there and sort of start to reflect on them and, and wonder about what they really might mean. You know, there's people like Elon Musk and a lot of a lot of tech, techno people. I don't know if techno people is the right word or phrase. Futurists, so to say, but important ones, right? I mean, Elon Musk is not just. Uh, I'm, I was I was going to say sci-fi writer, but it sounds almost like I'm demeaning sci-fi writers. And I, I as a writer myself, I'm not. I'm, what I'm trying to say is that he's a guy who, you know, he's doing things now that would have seemed sci-fi 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? So Elon Musk, for those of you who aren't familiar, I mean, he owns Tesla, the electric car company, and uh, SpaceX, the reusable rocket com com company, which even, <laughs> it's funny, I've shown that to students uh, who have written papers about some of the some of the companies that he runs and sort of what they do and why they're important and different and all that good stuff. And one of the videos I love to show them is a video of his Falcon 9 rockets, which he's been working on for quite some time now. And they are fully operational. I mean, he has contracts with the U.S. government, uh, with NASA, to, uh, as of now, he's sent rockets to bring payload supplies to the International Space Station. And I believe, I don't know if he, I, yeah, I don't, I think I would have read about this already this year because... Of course, I'm a nerd and I keep up with this stuff, but he was working to send, start sending astronauts. That was something that I think, I, I don't believe it's happened yet, but it's very soon to come. So he's the type of guy who's, he's doing stuff that seems futuristic and he's, he's making the future now, right? And one of the things he talks about as well is speculating upon artificial intelligence and what many might refer to as 
the singularity. Now, I don't want to get too much into what exactly a singularity is and what exactly that might mean for the future and fate of humankind. But it's an interesting concept, and it's this concept, again, this is very general, very brief. There's a whole rabbit hole of YouTube videos to get into (laughs) if you're interested to learn more. So uh, simply go on your phone and Google exactly that, singularity, where are we headed? And you'll spend a lot more time than listening to me going down that rabbit hole, like I said. But anyways, the very brief version is that essentially if you look at and chart the path of human progress, particularly in regards to computer processing and and computer speeds and calculations and all that sort of stuff, it uh, this is a layman's version of this explanation. So I apologize for any computer science, much smarter people than me who might think I'm getting this wrong or leaving out important details. But again, I'm just pulling it down to the basics here. So it's this idea that that type of progress, computer-related progress, begins to become asymptotal, where the progress doesn't just increase, but it increases exponentially over time. So as opposed to doubling, you know, once in a while, it doubles faster and faster and faster and faster and faster until you can no longer track the progress because it's it's outpacing, you know, it sort of becomes its own thing, right? I don't really have a better way to describe it than that, but it's this sort of moment that a lot of very smart people take very seriously because they wonder if, you know, is this another stage in evolution? Is this something that we can't really predict because we can't really conceive of it, right? I mean, are we the ancients here in 45 BCE and the singularity is the cell phone down the road? That if we even try to picture and comprehend it, we don't even have the tools to really do that, right? We don't have the reference. We don't have the framework. But is this more than that because of the rate of progress? You see what I'm saying? I mean, let's go back to 45 BCE. It's an interesting year, right? It's interesting because, like I said at the beginning, you know, the Egyptians are ancient, ancient history, even in 45 BC. They're still older to you than the people in 45 BCE, it's before the year zero, are to us today. That's how old, how much older the Egyptians are than people like, say, the ancient Romans. Again, what did they think that the world would look like in 50 years? 100 years? 500 years? 1,000 years? I mean, there are people who think this throughout history, right? They sort of try to imagine what the future is going to be like. And they're almost always wrong. Because again, it might be that your your metrics, what you're looking at in terms of making these calculations is just not even in the right ballpark. And to speculate on it, it sort of, it sounds silly. It feels like science fiction. Oh, maybe we'll become sort of, you know, cyborg, alien type, more efficient, you know, compact creatures like that's what the you know little gray aliens look like so maybe that's what we'll become I, I i feel crazy just even saying that right 
but I there's just no way to know. But I do feel confident saying that it will be different wherever we're headed. You know, one of the fears, of course, that people have in thinking about and talking about singularity and that type of human-generated artificial intelligence progress is this idea that, well, maybe that is the next step in evolution, right? Like, maybe that's why we don't see aliens among the stars. That's a big topic of debate right now in the scientific community, actually, is this idea of what you call the, the Fermi paradox, which was presented by this scientist who pointed out that, well, if there's life in the universe, we should see signs of it, right? And so there's all these theories as to why that's not the case, right? You know, are there certain great filters that filter out most civilizations throughout history? And by civilizations, I mean galactic civilizations, right? Or is life just super rare? I mean, maybe we're the first ones. Maybe we're the last ones. Maybe we're somewhere in the middle, which I tend to believe. You know, there's probably been life before us. There will probably be life after us. But who knows? I mean, this is something I want to talk about maybe in a future episode, but this idea of the reality of life and the chances of life and what that all really means. So maybe that's something we'll get to later. But my point being that it's hard to say what that next step will be for mankind, right? I mean, maybe we will transition into sort of artificial intelligence beings. beings. I think that, that is where it's going. We'll become some sort of hybrids, and then who knows? And again, that ties into the Fermi paradox. Well, maybe we don't see other civilizations because they don't go anywhere, right? That sort of makes sense. If you got to a certain stage in your progress and think about the work that we're doing with virtual reality and these, you know, sort of deep worlds that you can go into that way. Why would you ever leave? Isn't it cheaper, more efficient, more effective to stay where you are on your own planet in your own virtual made reality than, you know, spend all this time and money and resources and danger to venture out into the cosmos? Is that, you know, maybe, maybe what inevitably happens to most, most cultures, most societies? Or is, of course, that is that all sci-fi? So I don't know, but it is it is a topic that's come up in the past. And again, sometimes these more scientific-based or scientific-minded papers that I've had students do, but oftentimes ones that just talk about history in general. And when you try to reflect upon history, you have to keep that in mind that progress is thought differently throughout history. And it does make me wonder today, sort of, how how should we value where we are and how we got here and the progress of moving forward if we look at certain, certain issues that we're dealing with as a species today? Because some of the, these issues have been around quite some time, but some of them are relatively recent. And some of them, you know, the argument is we don't have much more time to deal with. Like, you look at global climate change, for example... And I mean, I'm as big of an eco-fascist as anyone around. I try to be reasonable in my politics, but when it comes to what we're doing to the planet and to the environment, I mean, I say all bets are off in terms of we have to do whatever we have to do to sort of right this ship. And of course, I don't think that's going to happen, or I don't know if it's going to happen, or in what capacity. 
But, you know, I wonder, you know, even if it doesn't, global temperatures keep rising, ice caps keep melting, seems to be where it's going. I mean, humanity will survive, right? I mean, there, there may be a lot of suffering and a lot of destruction and a lot of big changes, but I, I think the species will survive. Again, that's another episode for another day getting into global climate change because I have a lot of <laughs> a lot of strong opinions on all that uh, and, and, and how dangerous this is to our survival or at least to our way of life uh, as is, which has issues to begin with, right? But, you know, I want to say just, I want to say as, as, as another point, I mean, some of these issues that we forget about, they've existed for a long, long time. I mean, take smallpox, for example. Smallpox is a disease that I think most people my age and my generation don't really know much about, which is crazy when you think about the history of a disease like smallpox. I mean, smallpox goes back, I I think, thousands of years, probably even older than our our buddy Julius Caesar in 45 BCE, right? And if you want to see how bad of a disease smallpox it was, just Google smallpox and look up the pictures. And I say that with a warning because it is not it is not a pleasant sight. I mean, this was a ravenous, awful disease that killed many, 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 many people and you know, ruined the lives of, of many more. And I did look up a few stats on that. You know, and, and just even just specific ones are you 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 can really see the scope of something as impactful as one disease throughout history. For example, in 18th century Europe, uh, one estimate said that 400,000 people per year died from the disease. And one third of the cases resulted in blindness. I mean, think about the impact on your society, on your civilization. Not just in terms of the suffering, but what does that do to your culture and your outlook and your religion? your way of life, right? I mean, 400,000 people per year? That's almost as many casualties as people who died during the American Civil War, the U.S. Civil War. Another estimate I read, looking at it from a broader scope, was that smallpox was estimated to have killed up to 300 million people in the 20th century. 300 million that's about a little less than the population of the United States today. It's dead. I mean, these are genocidal numbers on a scale that no genocide has ever seen. And if you Google on your amazing magic box in your hand, smallpox, you know what the first thing that comes up when you click on smallpox? Just go to the Wikipedia article, which I never tell my students to do. That's not true. I tell them that they can go to Wikipedia, but you can't really use it. Well, you, all right, maybe we'll do an episode on Wikipedia too, because there's sometimes good sources, sometimes not so much. But in this case, I really like what they say for smallpox, because the first thing that comes up when you click on their article for smallpox is it says, and I quote, smallpox was an infectious disease. Smallpox was. 
This is a disease that was around for thousands of years. Probably, I mean, if you assume that up to 300 million people in the 20th century alone were killed by this disease, we're talking hundreds of millions of more throughout history, if not billions. It was globally eradicated in the 1980s. And we don't even think about it. We don't even think about it. But this was something that was just a way of life for thousands of years. And today it's gone. And we don't even give it a second thought, really. Or most of us, right? Which, again, that's not a knock. I mean, we all have a lot going on. And there's a lot more to worry about and a lot more to focus on, right? So it's not as if that's a criticism. But I think it's something that's important not to forget. You know, sometimes big positive changes, they can happen quickly like that. I mean, the eradication of smallpox wasn't quick in terms of it, you know, took many, many years to treat people uh, against it, but in the time scale of its existence, relatively quickly, right? When we consider how long it was around for. And so I think that's just what I wanted to conclude with was this idea that you have to ask yourself, what are we doing now to impact our future? And does what matter now, will it matter then? Will our values be the same in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's even the right question to ask, but values change. I mean, that's something that also comes up in many classroom discussions at the college level, and that oftentimes leads to really interesting conversations and sometimes debates, right? Because it's so easy to look back in history and say, oh my God, these people, they were horrible. They did all these horrible things. And that's objectively true, perhaps, right? But subjectively, you know, you want to know why people do what they do. Otherwise, you don't really get them. And I feel like if you don't really get how people were and why they were the way they were, I think it's harder to reflect on who you are and sort of why you do what you do. I mean, anybody who really thinks that a hundred years from now, Whoever's around looking back at us will look at us and say, oh, yes, that was the pinnacle of civilization and the pinnacle of culture and the pinnacle of intellect. You really think that? I don't. But I think we have made progress. I think we would all agree on that. And there's lots of specifics you can point to. But keep that in mind, right? That there's so many examples throughout history where the people of the time to them, that was the modern era. That was the modern age. 45 BCE, Rome, guess what? Your culture has made it. This is it. This is the highlight of civilization. We're going to keep building great stuff. Well, you know what? We're going to build it to last a thousand years because that's how long we're going to be around. Do you know why we're going to be around for a thousand years? Because a thousand years is pretty much forever. And who knows, maybe things will be a little different then. But this is it. We've made it, right? Now, do people really believe that? I mean, did people in 45 BCE really feel that way? Or do they feel like me now, right? Where I say, okay, well, we have made some progress. And we are very modern and contemporary and advanced. And we've made all these great changes. But there's still a ways to go, right? There's still more we can do. 
I don't know because I don't know what that future will look like. But again, I think that sort of perspective and reflection, it can really make you question a lot that works the way it does around you and, and ask, is this the best way, right? I mean, so many of the, the research proposals that I like that students come up with are the ones that, well, what might be a good idea to improve the world around us, even in a small way, right? You know, don't focus on writing a research paper on why solar energy is the way to the future. That sucks. Nobody wants to read a paper on why solar panels are great. I want to read a paper on why the school should adopt solar panels on their roof. Or not. Maybe there's a better way to use solar energy. Maybe use a different form of alternative energy altogether. But let's look at the specific issue as opposed to kind of these, you know, broader broader claims. I don't know. But I do know that it's important to think about these perspectives and it's important to consider the fact that the span of a human life, as much as we want to think this is it, this is our time, we've made it, and we're a part of it, we're really just one part of a long, long line, right, of ups and downs and Hopefully, ideally, slow, incremental progress. And I think that's the case. But I think that's important to keep in mind. You know, we get frustrated sometimes that society doesn't work exactly the way that we feel like it should. We feel like the way that it serves to. But don't forget about the good things that have changed. And that's not to say that we've done enough or that we're, we can, you know, wipe our hands and say, great, we made it. But we have done some good things. We've done some not-so-great things, obviously. That's something else we should definitely talk about moving forward. But we've, we've made a lot of progress. And to lose sight of that, I think, is shortchanging all those lives that have come before us. Because whatever their contributions, it was part of the world that made us who we are today. And this is sort of my, my ethos with my beach cleaning. Sure, I'm not going to clean the oceans all by myself, but I'm going to do a little bit, and I'm going to help a little bit around me, and I'm going to try to influence a few of the others around me. And that's going to slowly become part of what we're known for and part of where we get to, wherever that might be. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed. If you have questions, please, please do comment. Let us know what you would like to hear more about. If there was anything here that I got wrong, which I'm sure there is plenty, please don't hesitate to correct me. I always tell my students you get bonus points if you correct me, and you're correct, of course, because that's how we learn. But I would love to hear your thoughts. Again, what you might want to hear more about moving forward. And... Not sure exactly which topic we'll do next week, but it might be along one of these lines of some of these topics that we talked about. It might be something a little bit different. And of course, you never know what other conversations arise within the classroom that might be worth elaborating on in further detail here. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Every week is a new week, and we learn a lot more. So I'm excited by that.
I hope you are too. So than that, I hope you have a great week, and I hope to see you here next week on Professor Lab's podcast. Take care, and have a wonderful week.